0: Hello, I'm Louise. And I'm So, And welcome to Social Innovation Eurovision, a series of conversations with leading thinkers and doers exploring visions for social innovation across Europe. We're from SIX,
1: a global organization that believes collective power can change societies for the better. In this episode, we talk to Uffe Elba, a Danish politician and a social innovator. Uffe shares with us what makes Danish society special and also reflects with us on his life journey as an outsider working in and across different systems. Well, welcome to this podcast, Um, Uffe. Could you tell us about yourself?
2: Uh, At the moment, uh, I'm a member uh, of the Danish Parliament. I've been a public elected uh, politician for quite some years now, and uh, also been part of the former uh, cabinet as Minister for Culture. But uh, actually, I don't see myself as a, a, a politician, to be honest. I see myself much more like a cultural entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, slash educator, uh, slash yeah, public speaker, uh, slash activist. <laughs> more, more than... Uh, Flashing my MP title. I, I'm in, uh, in a really, for me, a very interesting personal uh, place right now because uh, this will be my last term uh, oh. in the Danish parliament. So uh, next election is also, in a way, my uh, chance to get out. <laughs> 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 of uh, traditional politics. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying that with a smile and a laugh because, uh, of course, it has been a privilege uh, to be an uh, elected uh, politician. There's some uh, very, very exciting uh, dynamic around that that you really uh, feel that you represent uh, a lot of people uh, in the Danish uh, society, in the parliament, and you will try to be their voice in different uh, topics.
1: Ufe, I know you've recently published your memoir, congratulations, Um, and throughout your life, um, you've navigated in very different spaces from being a social entrepreneur um, and also being a politician. Um, Is there a common thread in what you've done?
2: Uh, I won't uh, tell the whole story, but but I I got this message, uh, how you would describe it, that my destiny was to fight for freedom also my own. And um, actually, when I look back, that's actually been my agenda, figuring out how to create organizations and uh, institutions and even societies where where people can be who they are and in a way unfold their life talent on the highest level, uh, meaningful level for themselves in connection uh, with the... Yeah, the community or group of people they are part of. And uh, that uh, topic or issue has been part of my work always. And as you know, uh, I, I have been both uh, doing in the past when I was much younger, I, I created a cultural use organization uh, environment called the Front Runners, And uh, uh, later... Uh, higher uh, education called the Cares Pilots. Uh, I, I created political parties, uh, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But at the bottom of the line, it's all about people and how to create a space where they can be themselves and speak with a voice that is theirs. Maybe it sounds a bit fluffy, but but for me, it has been an ongoing uh, mm-hmm. issue.
0: I mean, if, if for us, that kind of drive in your framing for freedoms, for people's freedom, is so important because it's, you know, you are sector agnostic. It's not saying I will go in and change the public sector or mm-hmm. I will go in and change the education sector. You have the drive and You just work out the right way to progress that and make a Mm -hmm. move on that drive within whatever context, institution, country Mm -hmm. as well. Because I know you've worked in lots of different uh, places that feels right where you can make the most impact at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes for some when they're doing this work, particularly they're driven by European funds or they're driven by a political agenda. And, and I really like your perspective is driven by the motivation of what you're trying to achieve. And then you find the right way to try and achieve it at that moment. I think yeah. that your your kind of red thread is really inspiring for people doing this work. And interesting how you've been able to navigate all of those sectors. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder whether you could tell us about how, how you managed to do that.
2: Of course, it's uh, even if I've just published my memoirs, there's a lot of stuff that's still difficult for me to put words on because I can't see myself from the outside, so to speak. Uh, but but um, I had, and and I also write about this uh, this episode. But I had a really interesting uh, discussion with Anita Roddick, the former uh, the founder of Body Shop. Uh, unfortunately, she is, she died way too early. But uh, uh, we were good friends, and um, the way she was a businesswoman at the same time a social activist and uh, a extremely good communic- communicator. And uh, she used her power uh, in, in a way and her pro- public voice in a way that Still inspires me. I visited her and Gordon's uh, private house in uh, South uh, England, and uh, one of the days uh, we had a discussion about what drives the best entrepreneurs we have met in our life. And uh, she has met a lot of great entrepreneurs and social innovators. And I have, uh, through my life, uh, my work with the CAS pilots, it was actually Anita who concluded uh, our dialogue. She said that what she saw in the best entrepreneurs she has met was that uh, it was outsiders with uh, good work discipline. Uh, If if she looked into all the kinds of people she has met, activists, uh, social uh, innovators, uh, business entrepreneurs, cultural entrepreneurs, the best of them were outsiders uh, with uh, a good work discipline. And uh, outsiders could, uh, in this case, be people who really didn't fit, felt that they fit into the co- mainstream culture or the social context or a uh, sexuality that uh, was not uh, mainstream or whatever. In a way, I could totally mirror myself uh, in, in that conclusion because uh, uh, I'm a gay man. And even if I'm living maybe in one of the most tolerant countries uh, on the planet Earth, also when it comes to LGBT rights, When I was a young kid, I knew that I was different from uh, the rest of of the gang. And uh, for many years as a kid and uh, uh, a teenager, I tried to uh, look and talk and walk uh, and uh, do stuff like the straight guys. And uh, this outsiderness has been a a big motivation driver for me that in a way I don't, don't fit into the mainstream. I looked at it from the sideline and then I said, God damn it, I will show you that I can do stuff that is better than what you are doing. So so this uh, energy about trying to create your own rules, even if you are a principal of an education, or even if you are a culture minister, or even if you are a party leader, then uh, try to say this, uh, this underlying dynamic saying, Your rules are not good enough. I create my own rules. And I think that has been a psychological element in how I navigated through life. Even if I, of course, would have liked not to have this feeling when I was a kid and, and a teenager that... I did it, didn't fit it in. Then there has been some really, really interesting positive aspect of it also, because I look at things in a different way.
0: It's such an incredible story and in that, that just kind of that end, being able to look at things in a different way. And you did that because you were always an outsider. But there are lots of ways that we can all train ourselves to always yeah. question, I think, and always look at things in a different way. And I think that's, the, that's just a really... Um, yeah, and, and,
2: and it's, uh, it, 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 it's, um, I was principal of the, the chaos pilots, uh, we, we had part of the education program was what we called an outpost, uh, we created an outpost somewhere on the planet Earth, where something Interesting was happening that you couldn't uh, read about it in the textbook. So we had to create an, a kind of a, a class, a external classroom where these dynamics was in play. And then around 95, 96, 97, uh, the outpost was in uh, San Francisco where a lot of uh, interesting stuff was happening Uh, technology of course with the internet but also the whole discussion about how to understand organization and leadership etc so it was uh, for me uh, one of the most inspiring moments of my professional uh, work was was to be in san francisco during that uh, period and one day i read a small article in a a, a flyer about uh, a new a civil organization called uh, the Fourth Sector uh, Network. I still remember I was standing in front of the ferry building at the end of uh, Market Street in San Francisco with this little flyer in my hand. There was this uh, visual uh, description about what is the Fourth Sector, uh, this uh, space in between uh, the private sector and public sector and the NGO sector, civil society sector, and uh, I was looking at this uh, this uh, drawing, and uh, it was like this is me. <laughs> I had I had this moment uh, on, a, on a really really emotional level, saying he's writing, he's talking about me and my reality because I have done uh, I have created uh, private businesses, uh, startups in my life, but I've never felt like a businessman. I've done uh, uh, yeah, I've been uh, hired and uh, worked for the uh, the public sector, uh, but I never felt like a public servant. And I've done uh, uh, social innovation and NGO work, activism work, but I never felt like ex- activist was my full identity. So I was something again in between. I felt like a bit like a, a Renaissance uh, person that. Uh, I take the best part of what is there and then uh, I create good stuff out of it uh, that is, uh, in a way, response uh, from the outer world. I try to come up with ideas that fit to the needs of, of society. Uh, so this uh, hybrid uh, yeah, mentality that you create stuff out of what is already existing. Uh, that, that's for sure my has been my life all, all the time. And I'm, I'm a, a four-sector person. Uh, I, I'm a hybrid person. Uh, and I move easily in the three, uh, traditional sectors. But I, I, I like to do stuff in between.
1: That's why I think also you are able to educate others as well. Like, because you make other people see the differences. And I just remember me visiting you in Denmark with a group of Korean visitors from government and everyone was wearing uh, (laughs) uh, ties, very formal, and you showed up with your t-shirt and kind of did the whole tour of the parliament and the history of kind of women's rights and. Denmark and like the history of democracy and Denmark and it's just in my head that image that's nice that's
2: (laughs) nice actually when I was minister for culture Denmark also had the European uh, presidency and so uh, during that period I was in a way also minister for culture for Europe and when you are that you go to this hearing in Brussels, uh, in the European Parliament, uh, where you had to, yeah, stand up and uh, answer tricky questions so they know that you are okay cultural minister for Europe. When I entered the, the European Parliament, uh, I knew that I had to wear a jacket and etc. but I decided not to wear a tie. Uh, I thought, okay, I can look formal, but you will never get me to wear a tie. And, and even with it, what we talked about uh, in that uh, panel discussion with all the parliamentarians, it was just in the aftermath of the financial tri- crisis. So there's a lot of serious problems about culture and art and their position in a time of crisis. But after that uh, panel discussion, the only thing people talked about was what can a minister, cultural minister, <laughs> perform without a time? <laughs> and, 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 and in, in, in a way, it, it, it says something about uh, how all the old structures are so stuck up mm. and uh, Jesus Christ, get your shoulders down and be human, that you create stuff out of what is already existing? Can
0: You tell us a bit more about um, what you think about the context and the culture and the history of Danish society. That has that enabled you to do your work differently. Would you do you think you'd have been able to do the same in Spain or in, in uh, not Sweden? It's very similar to you, but you know hmm. Latvia or somewhere. Um, tell us about the kind of the Danish danish piece and then also how Denmark fits in in Europe yeah, and in that story. Of, course,
2: of course it's always always uh, dangerous to make stuff too white white and black and there's uh, of tons of, uh, of nuances uh, and uh, actually we are much more alike than we think we are uh, just to say that before I answer your question Absolutely. Uh, uh,
0: it's a provocative but, question. But, but,
2: but, but of course I have thought about it and uh, I have also written about it, because uh, why, why does Denmark uh, look like it does and how, why have we organized uh, our our society the way we have? Because it's different from for example UK, uh, just simple uh, differences uh, and which means a lot when we talk about social innovation and change, that you you have decided to have first-past-the-post elections, which make it nearly impossible for new political parties or movements to get a voice inside the parliament. Uh, Of course, I asked myself, why does Denmark look the way Denmark uh, looks? And um, I looked at the way our welfare state looks today and say, when did did this process started? And then I went all the way back to uh, 1813, that was uh, when Denmark lost the war. Uh, We were on the wrong side of the Napoleon
1: War. Denmark went bankrupt uh, in 1813.
2: But the most interesting stuff about that was that in 1814, one year later, Denmark decided a reform where uh, we got our first public school system. So all kids uh, from uh, first to seventh grade uh, could attend education for free. That was the start of the, yeah, the public school system in Denmark. And I think that that's really interesting that one year after we went bankrupt, we couldn't pay the civil servants, etc. We decided to invest in the common good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in a way, I think it's really extraordinary because... If Denmark went bankrupt today, then uh, we'll get a press release from the Minister of Finance saying that we have to cut there and here and there and uh, we had to work longer hours, etc., etc. And we had cut our spendings. Uh, but back 200 years ago, they said, okay, we are bankrupt, but then we have to invest in the future and make every kid to attend education for free. And mm. from there you saw all kinds of uh, uh, movements established Uh, and not, of course, not only in Denmark, you saw it also in UK, uh, but uh, you had the the co-op movement, you had the farmers movement, you had the workers movement, you had uh, in Denmark also what we call the enlightenment movement. So up through the next uh, nearly uh, 75 years, you saw all kinds of movements. and also new political parties, and new media platforms, et cetera, et cetera. And then uh, when I saw all this and uh, mapped it, I said to myself, but who who has been responsible for that? Was it uh, the Minister of Finance or Prime Minister's office? No, not at all. It was a very, very simple uh, thing. Uh, and that was that people came together in meaningful uh, communities creating solutions on concrete problems. So the farmers went together and figured out how can we, with our resources, if we pull it, then how can we create uh, diary uh, businesses uh, the co-op movement uh, the same and the workers uh, movement uh, also they created all kinds of stuff uh, not only political parties but also unions and educations and cultural institutions etc and it was driven that people came together in meaningful communities creating solutions on concrete problems uh, again it sounds nearly too banal to say but but the uh, that has um, had the effect in Denmark that we are, I think we are the country who has the most, what you call, uh, strongest civil society, that there are, are organizations for all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I think most Danes are members of, I don't know, 10 different organizations, um, civil organizations, and uh, that, that uh, mindset that you can do stuff if you come together. And you, you don't have to ask for allowance by the municipality or city council or the ministry. We just do stuff. Yeah. And, and, and it sounds a bit more mm. better than it is in reality. But, but there's a lot of stuff Danes are not that good at. But what we are, we, we are quite good at organizing people. Yeah. And, and uh, we're, we're good at creating spaces where, where something can happen. Uh, when people come together. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why we look as we do. But the the challenge we have today is, of course, to say, okay, we have had one big first social innovation wave starting back 200 years. But who and how and why could we kickstart the second social innovation wave? Mm. And uh, can we learn something from the first because we, we don't, uh, we had a, a economic bankruptcy 200 years ago, but uh, we don't have an economic uh, bankruptcy today. Uh, if we, we have a bankruptcy today, then it, it's a bankruptcy of meaning, that mm-hmm. people have lost uh, the feeling of meaning in what they are doing. And uh, way too many of us have this feeling that we are running in a hamster wheel and we're just running uh, faster and faster coming nowhere. And uh, so, so I think a core uh, issue when we talk about uh, what drives the next social innovation wave, that, that's uh, the question about meaning.
1: And what, what um, at this kind of junction um, and also injunction in your life as well this yeah. year as a reflective point and you moving on next year, what, what, what is your future vision? I don't have a clear answer on that. And the, the reason is also because what is happening in the, the world right now. One month ago, uh, Russia invaded uh,
2: Ukraine. And uh, of course, that uh, changed the whole political dynamic in Europe and in EU. I'm not so familiar with what uh, how it has uh, change the dynamic in UK, but the EU uh, people and countries has really come together, but mm. also that uh, right now, uh,
1: people uh, have decided that most
2: governments have decided to spend much more money on military and uh, self-defense. Yeah, And that, and that happens the same time as uh, uh, we have the climate crisis uh, and everyone knows that Earth is on, is on a tipping point, and that crisis is actually much, much bigger than uh, the crisis in, uh, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, sorry to say it, uh, because it's so awful what is happening in Ukraine, but we will see millions of people dying of uh, the effect of the climate crisis uh, in the coming uh, decades. And, and the climate crisis will uh, give birth to, and it already does, to all kinds of uh, social conflicts. Uh, conflicts around the resources, conflicts about security, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe two, two months ago, I would say that uh, this is a very, very special moment for <laughs> uh, humankind. And now all this is happening uh, and we have corona on top of it. It's like it's one disaster after the other. Uh, and uh, and how can we in this situation still create hope and energy mm. for a positive change?
1: So, what could we do about this, Ufe?
2: I think the only solution, but one of the solutions, is actually that that we really understand how important it is to create these relationships with each other, both locally but also globally. And uh, six has. Been a, a huge driver uh, for that in your work, and I, I just hope that uh, six together with similar mind-like-like it uh, people and uh, initiatives can, uh, in a way, can create a web of uh, of social change. Yeah, we just have to stand up for each other and mm-hmm. support each other and. Uh, highlight uh, all uh, the good examples about uh, that uh, it's possible to make change and positive change.
1: This is just a fun kind of question for our listeners. Um, could you tell us a book or a person that's inspired you? Uh,
2: again, that's a tricky question because I put <laughs> books and people from now on in the next 24 hours. I, I've already <laughs> mentioned erotic uh, as a, a person that has inspired me uh, enormously. Two other persons that really has uh, not only inspired me, but also motivated me and uh, educated me uh, was one is... Uh, Margaret Whitley, uh, 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 American uh, yeah, business writer, leadership uh, writer, uh, but also a spiritual uh, figure. And uh, her book, and it's an old book now, it's uh, nearly 30 years old Leadership and the New Science. Uh, it was called, for me, it was a totally wake-up call about how to understand organization and leadership and uh, how we organize ourselves. Another person that still has an effect on me and the way I think is uh, the founder of uh, VisaCard International, uh, Mr. D. Hawk, is it his name? He's an old man now living up in Washington State. What he uh, learned and trained me in the way to understand leadership and the different levels of leadership, and how to build sustainable organization, I am, I am who I am because, I for example, has met these people, uh, and I think that that is important that we always remember that on our life journey we meet and bump into people that suddenly uh, inspire us to do new stuff and see new stuff, and uh, these three people has really. Really pushed me uh, in the right direction. So, thank you for that, I could say.
0: So nice to talk to you, Ufe. Thank you so much for your time. Wow, so that was an incredible whirlwind journey through Ufe's incredible life from, you know, being an activist and and, and uh, social entrepreneur and setting up loads of organizations to spending the last several years in parliament as as an MP and trying to change things from the inside. It's, a, it's an incredible journey as a outsider insider and in how he's he's navigated that. Yeah.
1: And I found like really interesting the story of Denmark and the mm. power of kind of Danish society and, bringing people together organizing and really moving people right. And right kind of creating lots of political social movements in a time that um, they were kind of economically bankrupt
0: mm. um, but and this we think of Denmark right when you think of Denmark you think of social movements and being really organized and mm. and people coming together
1: yeah and yeah, and I think it's particularly poignant, poignant,
0: or mm. particularly
1: interesting um, how Ufe talks about um, the, what it means in the current times.
0: Right, that kind of bankruptcy of meaning, is incredibly powerful way of talking about where we are right now.
1: Yeah, and we're not in the kind of, I mean, we're kind of going through crisis after crisis, but unlike maybe hundred, two hundred years ago. Um, How do we find kind of meaning in these times is kind of more relevant
0: question to be asking now. Mm. I guess that's what we're trying to do with these conversations with these amazing leaders from really different perspectives across Europe. Yeah,
1: and What's coming up for the next episode, Louise?
0: Ah, right. So in our next episode, we're going to be talking to Madeleine Clark from Genio, uh, based in Ireland. And Genio is an organisation which supports the scaling of social innovations. Um, with Madeline, we're going to talk about compassion, Irish culture and what it means to get the right people in the room. Hope
1: you join us for our next episode, everyone.